Welcome to Health Talk by Flowly. We begin every episode with a brief exercise to shift your nervous system closer to flow state. We do this so your nervous system can settle and you'll feel relaxed and ready to experience the interviews in each episode. Julian, who is the voice of our Flowly experiences, will take a few seconds to lead this exercise. Take a moment to adjust yourself into a comfortable position. Take a slow breath in through your nose, hold it for a few seconds, and slowly exhale through your nose as well. In your next breath, breathe in for a count of five. One, two, three, four, five. And now exhale for a count of five. One, two, three, four, five. Continue to take slow breaths in through your nose and out through your nose as well. Counting in five and counting out five. We have you breathe in this pattern because it equals six breaths per minute, which is the average breathing rate at which people can best control their nervous system. In Flowly, we do individualized calibration to find the exact breathing rate healthiest for you because it varies from person to person. For today, we'll end this exercise with one more five count in, one, two, three, four, five, and a five count out, one, two, three, four, five. Let's begin today's health talk. Hey y'all, my name is Celine. I'm the founder of Flowly and your host today for Flowly's Health Talk. As some of you might know, Flowly is a mobile platform for chronic pain, anxiety, and mental health management. We use biofeedback for relaxation training, and even in VR, we basically teach you how to control your nervous system. In our health talk, we invite everyone from chronic pain, illness, mental health warriors to chat about what tools they use to manage their daily living. We also love to invite on professionals to talk about their work, their research, and how they apply it to daily living. I'm really looking forward to today's chat with our guest today, a psychologist with more than 20 years of experience, Dr. Carla Pulliam. Dr. Carla Pulliam has been a practicing clinical psychologist for 20 years. She has worked both in and outpatient psychiatric and medical settings and has a longstanding psychotherapy private practice. Recently, she co-founded the Chrysalis Center with a longtime friend and colleague in order to reach more patients and have a bigger impact on education and on her local community. Dr. Pulliam has worked with many populations, including depression, anxiety, parenting issues, health and medical issues like diabetes, chronic pain, and more. She's passionate about the integration of mind and promoting overall well-being. She's also the clinical assistant professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center, where she also trained. I'm really excited to speak to Dr. Pulliam. Quite a biography there. So without further ado, we'll just kind of jump into it. Welcome, Carla. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and to be able to speak with your audience. So a lot of your work begins with psychoanalytical or psychodynamic approaches. And I think this may include integrating everything from individuals biological, behavioral, spiritual, to maybe emotive disposition or state, and integrating that into the therapy work with you. 
Uh, but there's so many, it sounds like so many different aspects to consider. How would you explain this sort of psychodynamic approach and what does it mean for patients that are working with you? Gosh, what a fabulous question. And I'm so happy to be able to talk about psychodynamic psychotherapy because I think the, the sort of layperson's view of it is often inaccurate. So before I can even describe what that is, I want to talk about what it means to treat from a certain school of thought at all. I think, you know, there's data out there that would say cognitive behavioral therapy for this or this type of therapy for that. And you're so right that there are so many factors to consider. And it it's, can be more of a factor of what type of therapy for what person at what point in their life so that we can draw on everything we know about neuroscience and biology and state, like you said. The current research would show that only like 10% of good treatment outcome comes from the model of treatment that you're using, which contradicts, I think, some of um, the research that's out there on very specific specific schools of thought. Um, who the therapist is can account for another 9, 10, 11% if the therapist is warm and engaging and empathic and like is, is listening to the patient that they're sitting in front of and you agree upon goals. Um, so those factors are very important. More importantly than what is my work, I think is the idea that we know that therapists fall into sort of three groups. There's like a super group that tends to do quite well with the patients they treat. There's a middle group. And then there's a group of therapists who don't do as well, except most therapists rate themselves as doing quite well. And so it's <laughs> this idea of like getting feedback and learning is very important. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's my intro. Having said that, the old version of psychodynamic psychoanalytic therapies, I think people think of Freud and laying on the couch and a very disengaged clinician, maybe who's just listening, but not saying very much. And while that is where a lot of the focus on the unconscious mind and some of the techniques we use started, there's been so much variation in research since then. Psychodynamic psychoanalytic therapies tend to focus on the unconscious, which we could talk more about if you want, and the relationship. The idea that what's happening between the patient and the people in their world, from the earliest relationships to current relationships, and then with the therapist. I really like, there's something called developmental psychoanalysis, which looks at mother-infant interactions, all the things we mm. talk about, biology, neuroscience, what's your context, who are your people, what's your spirituality and your culture, and tries to take, so if you work with me, we're likely to be talking about all of that and using modalities from all those perspectives. Yeah, and you mentioned briefly sort of the unconscious element, and because I know that you talk about the unconscious conflict that many people might experience when trying to adjust or, you know, change certain behaviors. Can we dive into that a little bit more? Like what is unconscious conflict? And then how can you even begin to recognize and then address it? I, I mean, I think the unconscious is more accessible to people in their daily lives than they tend to acknowledge. You know, the, the classic example might be that you're, we call it um, driving hypnosis. You know, you get in your car after work and put on your radio and suddenly you're home and you don't really actually remember driving yourself there some of the times. We call that, that would be procedural unconscious awareness. Your body just kind of knows, you know. We think of the, the analogy of an iceberg, sort of what you see above the water is conscious, but there's all that stuff happening underneath. I mean, what's so fascinating lately is neuroscience really shows this a lot as well. If you look at, um, there's really good data on mother-infant interactions. And if you video those interactions and slow the frames to, you know, millisecond, 
you can actually see the infant sort of taking care. It's mothers in this research primarily, but I think it would be any primary caregiver. Sort of anticipating the caregiver's response, taking care of the mother. Babies can imitate the face of, um, there's a really great video with a dad from 10 days old. So this is all stuff that's happening before the baby really, you know, has a conscious awareness as we tend to think of ourselves as adults. And we form basic relational patterns based on and ways of intervening with our world, interacting with our world based on the interactions that tended to go well for us early on and keep us safe. And most of us are still using them as adults without much awareness of it. So an example that comes up a lot when I'm working with patients with pain and health or, you know, you might want to lose weight or quit smoking or start exercising. And despite knowing very consciously that that's in your best interest and not having any conscious awareness of why you should not be doing that, yet it seems difficult to get yourself started on doing that. And we can often trace that back to earlier interactions that the person just isn't thinking about in their day to day. So the question, how do you get at it? I think it's however we can bypass our thinking mind. I'm sure a lot of your viewers know basic brain information, but the frontal cortex where we tend to think rationally and make our decisions and defer our impulses, a lot of the unconscious is in our more primitive brains, in our limbic systems and even more reptilian kind of parts of that. So we try to kind of trick our unconscious or bypass it through dreams or feelings that come up in the room. There's, I was listening to a podcast. There's a new book by somebody called Jay Shetty. It's called Think Like a Monk. And mm. he was talking about actually going on nature walks and you, you know, look at a leaf and you see the color and you think, what does that color remind you of? What comes to your mind? People are a little reticent to do that at first because we're used to wanting to look all put together and organized and there's some learning curve to just kind of playing with whatever thoughts or images come to your mind. But those are the ways that we tend to get at kind of the heart or the gut and we're most likely to encounter our unconscious there. Yeah, I, I love that you're bringing that up and that you do focus and talk about this unconsciousness because in the work we do with biofeedback, a lot of it is connecting what you can consciously do to try and manage your unconscious system. So yeah, that's amazing. That also leads a little bit into my next question, which we actually met because you are a Flowly user and uh, you, we, my team was really impressed that you actually had your kids do Flowly. Um, and so, you know, working with Flowly yourself, but also with other family members, I wondered if you had experience or thoughts about how biofeedback could help children with ADHD. And I actually ask this because there is have there have been studies on this, but also a community member had asked this for a previous interview, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it and see if that was something that you had thought about or worked with before. Oh, I hope that community member is listening because... <laughs> <laughs> Boy, ADD, ADHD, it's quite a thing. So um, yes, my kids do Flowly. I'm a geek parent, especially here in quarantine lockdown. I decided that it was a great opportunity to get my teenagers meditating in some form and exercising regularly. They hate me for it, but I'm convinced it will have long-term payoff for sure. Mm -hmm. And I love Flowly because it's so engaging, um, especially for my youngest. They think that the VR headset is really cool and they look at all the worlds and can impact all the stuff. And so um, kudos to you guys for creating that. It's unique, I think, for a lot of the tools that I use. Biofeedback for ADHD is, it's more neurofeedback and it can be quite helpful. 
I was looking into this actually for a new patient of mine recently. There's a recent meta-analysis. It's like 2015 or something. It evaluates all the different neurofeedback, biofeedback, you know, EEG biofeedback for ADHD. And it shows that for some of the tested techniques, there's pretty good data that it actually helps what it's supposed to help and is specific to what it's supposed to help. And so um, those would be the brain wave, you know, you put the electrodes on the head. And so looking at theta, beta ratios, looking at the motor cortex of the brain or just cortical potentials. And there is pretty good data at this point and consistent that those can help people improve attention and, you know, help with their impulsivity and slow their brains down. What is important, though, is that there are lots of other kinds of neurofeedback, biofeedback out there that do not have good support behind it. I think what's important is to do your research and make sure the ones that you're looking at are actually the ones that have some data behind them. Um, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are database, I think it's important. Mm-hmm. It, the other it's very thing important to us. ADHD that I think is so important in any treatment, really. You know, so neurofeedback can be time consuming and expensive versus medication. Some people might want to do medication, it might work for some people, it might not others. You just have to really look closely at what can I afford, what can I put my time in, what works for me, do your research, know your providers, as I know that your Flowly community certainly does. But yes, I guess that's a long answer to say it can be helpful for ADHD. And then kind of in the same vein, someone else asked about PTSD specifically. Do you have experience working with clients that do experience PTSD? Do you have recommendations about how Flowly could help with that, but also just any other kind of daily practice or tools that could be integrated into that experience? Boy, there's a lot in the research on it right now. There's certainly a lot of people experiencing it right now for so many reasons and people that have past trauma are having their trauma triggered by a lot of quarantine and the the fear of um, being infected or COVID or um, however you choose to think about that. It's, It's tough, tough times for people with chronic anxiety and then especially for people with trauma. Um, And a surprising amount of us have trauma in our history somewhere. There's just a lot I could say about that. One, I guess what I want to say is, again, to reiterate my message that one size does not fit all. The American Psychological Association has put out some guidelines recently about the kinds of treatment that can treat PTSD. And while I admire any effort to look at research and evaluate what different things could be good for people. There is some contention in my community about, again, that one size fits all kind of treatment. One PTSD is not another PTSD. And so far as a bad car accident or watching one incident is very different than complex trauma, which occurs over time in multiple incidents and and may be, you know, sexual or physical abuse on behalf of a caretaker, which becomes especially difficult because that is the person that's supposed to keep you safe is now inflicting danger. I just always have this message and formed chrysalis, in fact, to help disseminate this message that Mm -hmm. different things can work for lots of people and every person is different and has a unique constitution and temperament and personality and circumstance. So it is so different for each person. And I think that in our age of getting information so easily on the internet, it's easy to go read about other people's experiences, read other people's like Reddit posts or vlogs and things like that. And um, I think it's totally fine to try different and explore different methods, but just to understand that everybody's so different. 
Um, and even though, for example, we're a team, we work on one platform and we have um, a way of approaching, you know, pain and anxiety and mental health, we always emphasize that we are just one tool in your toolbox. And there are so many other tools that could go into it because each person is very different. Um, so I love that that's something that you're emphasizing, especially for something specific to each person as PTSD. Then I would kind of want to lead into the next question, which is also about different tools, but perhaps, you know, there are more general tools that you've used before. You've seen successes with different types of clients. Um, and this is about pain management. Have you tried or seen success for alternative ways of managing pain while, you know, understanding that each person is different? Gosh, what a great question. And I like really appreciate Floli's openness to other platforms too, because I think especially in chronic pain, you don't know quite what is going to be the thing that, that helps you kind of get that you could live a life with chronic pain because life gets so small and so fear-based when you're visiting doctor after doctor after doctor. And um, so demoralizing, I think, that quandary of wanting there to be something wrong almost so that there's some defined pathology that helps make sense of your experience and therefore the hope that there would be something that you could do. But of course, not wanting there to be something wrong because who, who wants something to be wrong? And so I would say initially with chronic pain, and this is how Flowleys and other um, tools like this are so helpful, somehow accepting the idea that there are solutions that aren't just medical. It's so difficult for people to absorb that. And I think in part that's because multiple trips to specialists, very well-intended doctors communicate that I don't know what's wrong with you. And therefore something must be wrong with you in your head, or it must be just your anxiety, or you're making this up or you're exaggerating. And so it becomes so difficult then to accept this idea that it could still be in our brain and we still feel it very much as pain, but it might not be directly related to some structural abnormality. You know, I broke my leg and that's why it hurts. So, and, and a lot of that has to do with a hyperactive nervous system. And I, I think it's one of the reasons I love slowly. You know, we could talk about breath work and meditation and mindfulness and the types of meditation, um, but targeting heart rate variability is one of the most basic ways to try to calm down a hyperactive nervous system. And it, that back to the PTSD question, I think one thing that helps people with PTSD very much is consistent training around calming your sympathetic nervous system, calming that fight or flight, learning that just because you feel fight or flight does not mean that you're in danger and welcoming that response that's so much easier said than done, but it is your brain trying to protect you and keep you safe. And there's something that we could so appreciate about neuroscience and the way our bodies come to protect us that way. So one thing I don't like about technology is this emerging idea that you could do therapy in an app because mm -hmm. I think very much it's about the relationship. And you heard me talk about mother infants. You know, we come to know ourselves in relationship to people. And so I do not think there is a role for therapy on apps that man, there's a role for almost everything else. So uh, pain logs, thought logs, sleep trackers, exercise trackers, you know, nutrition, the heart rate variability, mindfulness. I, I have a whole slew of different apps and tools that I recommend to people. And we're hoping at Chrysalis actually to put like a lab in our center so that post-therapy we could actually prescribe certain meditations or certain, you know, breathing techniques or because it's so important 
not just to people with anxiety and chronic pain, but I think to overall well-being, that capacity to slow ourselves down and be mindful in our worlds, it's it's just something that we're, we're not very good at anymore, unfortunately. And I wonder, kind of in this vein, are there maybe mental tools, ways of thinking, framing situations where you can kind of remain more positive or inspire more positivity when you do feel like, oh, I'm like in constant pain and I'm not able to do a lot of the physical activities I would otherwise want to do, things like that. And I ask this because we work with a lot of patients, as you know, in our clinical trials, and we hear a lot of a sense of sort of almost hopelessness, like I will never not be in pain. And one of the biggest questions is how do I stay positive? And I wonder if there are ways that you help your clients in reframing that or thinking about that. Boy, that's a tough one. Because I mean, I said that before, but you and I both know when you're trapped in your pain cycle, I should say, the world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You become afraid to do anything, and then anything that could make it better starts to seem impossible. I know a lot of your listeners, if if they are have a lot of pain or are quite ill or, or are struggling with this in the way that we're talking about, it's hard to be social because you don't know when your pain's going to show up, and so you stop making social plans and you get up and maybe you lose your balance. And so you stop getting up and then your muscles atrophy. And so then you really can't do as much or you're, you become deconditioned. There's so much about that. So part of it is really just wrapping your mind around this idea. As long as you've been to the doctors and the specialists and ensured that there is no imminent danger to your body, that your world doesn't have to be quite that small. So we could start challenging some of the catastrophic cognitions. You know, there, there's research that would show that if you take people with chronic pain and people without and put them in an MRI machine and expose them to loud, I mean, especially loud, difficult sounds, the chronic pain person is going to respond with a lot more autonomic reactivity. And in fact, they respond to lots of things with increased autonomic reactivity. So just that idea that, okay, just because I'm freaking out here does not mean that I can't do this thing or that I couldn't push myself a little bit more. And you kick in that operant conditioning of, oh, look, I just did that, and I met this person, and how cool is that, you know? But I think it really is breaking out of that pain cycle first. And then a lot of these other tools that we look at, challenging cognitive distortions, um, catastrophic thinking, often when there is uncertainty. There's another cool study that is very relevant to COVID right now, um, where if you put people in a video game that, gives them just a mild, not too painful shock every so often. And then you measure their stress reactivity to that. It is the, of course, there's stress reactivity to the administration of the shock, but it is waiting on the shock and the unpredictable nature of the shock and not knowing when the shock is coming that keeps those people kicked up in like a high stress all the time. So of course, we're all in that situation right now, not knowing what's next, but Resilience, basically, I mean, taking care of our bodies, nutrition, sleep, exercise, there's, I mean, everybody says that, but there are such fabulous reasons in research why each of those decreases pain, decreases anxiety, and helps us feel better. I think connectedness, social, meaningful connectedness is the most buffering factor in almost any circumstance. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's one of the reasons that quarantine is especially difficult. We're struggling with our connected relationships. Purpose, meaning. It was easier for many people at the beginning of quarantine when we thought that it was going to be for a brief period of time because not only was it time to find, but we also knew why we were doing it. 
And now with so much conflicting data and information coming from all over the spectrum, it's much harder. But anything that we do, you know, cleaning the kitchen can become a very meaningful activity. I would really say that mindfulness, um, meaningful connectedness, taking care of your body, purpose and meaning in your life. Those seem like some factors, but they're really life-changing and brain-changing. I completely, you know, pre- you're preaching to the choir here. <laughs> I think I agree with that so much. And I was just uh, in a previous interview, I was talking to another health advocate and she was saying she has she has a chronic illness that even making the bed first thing in the morning helps her a lot. And it brings sort of a sense of meaning and purpose to her day um, and also sets the tone for the day. And I think that even though we mentioned all these different little things that they're all tied together because your body doesn't work in silos. And a lot of people ask me, you know, what does anxiety have to do with pain? Well, it's exactly the pain cycle you're talking about, where if you can start to manage the anxiety, then you can break out of the cycle so that when you do have pain, you know, it will pass or that it, you're not, you can also focus on where in your body, you don't feel pain. So things like that, I think, are just small ways of reframing and thinking about it that could help. And you just touched on everything that, you know, we talked about. That's, yeah, yeah. that's really amazing. What is so important is there's there's a, a guy in Australia right now, Lorimer Mosley, who's doing research on how the brain learns fear and how the brain learns. And there's some really cool data that would show that, you know, chronic pain, fear, anxiety, fear, they all look the same in our brain. And so, and it is our brain trying to keep us safe. There's like something so wonderful about that. Even chronic pain leading to anxiety, you could even say that chronic pain and anxiety can look very similar. And and it is all about the brain learning what hurts and what doesn't hurt and what should you stop doing and then sort of retraining that over time. My last question kind of breaks off from this, which is, how can caretakers, friends or family help somebody who is struggling with trauma or anxiety or pain? What is their role in this? Any tips, tools, things that you have seen work? I think I'm first going to make a plug for just being a kind human (laughs) right now with all the craziness in the world. I think relating to whether it is your, you know, the person you know with chronic pain or anybody else, what we know helps all of us feel better is an engaged interaction where we're willing to be curious about the other person's experience, even if it's different than ours, as opposed to just blindly asserting and driving home, you know, I'm right, you're wrong. And, and I think that's relevant to chronic pain also, because people who have not experienced it don't understand. And, you know, often out of trying to be helpful and be optimistic, can be very dismissing. I would say listening to the person with chronic pain, understanding how demoralizing it is to watch your world shrink and to go to all those doctors, spend all that money keeping up with Medicaid. I mean, for some people, just filling their med box is extremely stressful, <laughs> you know, just and keeping track of all the prescriptions. And um, one reason we like to, you know, rely on some of these other techniques more if we can. I would say understanding that pain can be unpredictable and that this person, maybe if they've made some plans with you and not shown up to not take that personally, but to understand that there are certain accommodations that can be made for chronic pain, but also, and this is so different with people, 
helping push them in a kind way, right? Maybe we don't have to cancel that plan. Maybe we could find another way to do it so that we still get connected social interaction or so that you realize you can get out of bed today and we can go somewhere. Kindness, compassion, and understanding. But that's kind of my pitch for the world these days. <laughs> yeah, no, true. <laughs> very, very true. And I also think the when you emphasize listen, I think that really resonated with me across several different spectrums. But I think for this one in particular with people with pain or anxiety or chronic conditions, just to spend the time to listen to them. Because I think that in right now in sort of the society we live in, we don't take that time to listen. And so that is so important. I'm so glad you brought that up. Everybody is trying to find the tools to help themselves, whether you have a chronic condition or not. I will say that I come from an abled body perspective and I still find all of these techniques and tools really necessary for myself just to manage my daily mental health. And so this is really incredibly important. Thank you for your work and thank you for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Anytime. Mm-hmm.